If you get off the train at Rhodes Station in Sydney, you find yourself in a leafy street lined with modern buildings. Behind me, you can hear trains running along the tracks as residents holding shopping bags go about their day. But this area didn't always look like this. This was an industrial uh, uh, zoned area and there was nothing but uh, factories here and a very small number of uh, houses. On the other side of the railway line is a residential area, but this was exclusively uh, factories and uh, overwhelmingly uh, related to the chemical industry. I'm power walking down Walker Street, trying to keep up with Andrew Ferguson. He's a councillor with the local Canada Bay Council. So I lived here for about two and a half years in that building up there. Yeah. And uh, I'm still in the local council area. Almost directly across from the station, we pass a big construction site. Um, are they building apartments? Or? Uh, yes, so there's more apartments being built here and a shopping centre. All these signs of life where there would have only have been factories before the 1980s. So probably the Union Carbide site was probably around here. Right. Union Carbide was just one of the companies that operated here through history, manufacturing chemicals. From its establishment in 1928 to its closure in 1986, there was a range of substances produced here, including timber preservatives, herbicides, pesticides, and plastics. During the Vietnam War, some of the ingredients used to make Agent Orange were manufactured here too. But there's no sign of a chemical industry here now or at least no visible sign. So really you've seen a very rapid uh, transformation of uh, really what would you could call an industrial wasteland into a very modern uh, high-rise uh, residential uh, precinct now. Hey, Susanna. <laughs> you know everyone. A little way further along the road, we arrive at an open space between two modern apartment blocks. So about two years ago, uh, Uh, A group of uh, residents uh, formed a uh, committee to establish a a community garden. So Andrew isn't just a local councillor. He's also the formation president of the Rhodes Community Garden. And he's led me here to see the fruits of the group's labour. And we were allocated a uh, a space uh, just here. Cool. Uh, And uh, our initial intent was to um, put the community garden in the, uh, the soil and perhaps have a couple of fruit trees. But there are no vegetables growing from the soil and no fruit trees taking root in the ground. Council made it very clear that that wasn't possible because of um, the history of the area and uh, the possible residues that are still below the surface of the soil. So the Rhodes Community Garden went ahead, planted in big boxes full of soil that comes from somewhere else. Somewhere there's no reason to fear toxins left over from years of chemical manufacturing. If I was to ring you out of the blue and tell you that your home was near contaminated land, what would go through your mind? Would you be worried? In 2004, New South Wales Health did a study to see if there was an increased incidence of cancer in the Rhodes Peninsula Bay area, the same strip where I walked past the old Union Carbide site to visit the community garden with no fruit trees. 
The study was done in response to community concerns that living in the area had exposed them to dangerous toxins. The report found there wasn't an increased incidence of cancer for those living in the Rhodes Peninsula area. But this wasn't enough to put everyone at ease. You're listening to Think Health. I'm Nina Kopel. When we think about contaminants and we think about the health implications of contaminants, you're often thinking about the physical side of things. What is that substance doing to me, to my health? Do you think that we think enough about the worry and what's happening in our heads? No, we don't. Yeah, there's definitely a lack of research into that. This is Erica McIntyre. I'm a PhD in psychology and I work in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Erica was part of a research project looking at the link between worry and contamination. What kind of health concerns are we talking about when we're talking about worry? Okay, so when worry is really excessive, anxiety and depression, particularly anxiety, But if that goes on for long periods of time, it can cause stress. It's quite strongly related to stress. And then we're talking about health, physical health effects, such as uh, problems associated with heart disease. It can cause an inflammatory response in the body. And this project was looking at contamination, right? The way that contamination leads to worry. Am I getting that right? Yeah, well, it's more how people experience living near contamination and whether or not that does cause them to worry. And did they worry? Is, is it associated? Yeah, yeah, it was. I've been researching the area of contamination and remediation probably for about, since about 2008, so almost a decade. This is Jason Pryor from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. He worked on the project with Erica. I was doing a lot of interviews, and during those interviews, a lot of the time the word worry came up as one of the most common words. Which isn't how experts have traditionally thought about contamination. They tend to think less about worry and more about risk. Risk is, if you're a scientist, it's the probability of some sort of danger, for example, occurring to you, sort of like cancer or something like that. Communities, on the other hand. They sort of talk about risk in terms of magnitude. It's either a big or a small risk. And there are three important types of risks that communities worry about. There's the health risk to themselves and their families. What effect, for example, does lead have on your capacity, your cognition and your thinking? What effects does lead have on your health, general health? Then there are risks to what Jason calls ecosystem services things which the environment gives us. So for example, if you're in a contaminated area or near living near a contaminated site, you might not be able to access the groundwater because the groundwater contaminated. You may not be able to grow fruit trees or plant a veggie garden. Just the fresh air you breathe, you know, if you've got, for example, lead contamination, lead contamination can move by wind, moving dust and that sort of thing. And then there's the risk of impact to nature. To a lesser extent than sort of their own health issues, communities were worried about the effect on the local environment, for example, other animals and plants and the wildlife. And so from talking with communities, Jason learnt how people understand contamination, but also what they don't understand. I always remember there was one site where we went and interviewed some mothers at the site who had just had 
um, newborn babies. And one of the sites was lead. So, for example, they were told to clean their house regularly to collect all the dust. So they did that. They collected all the dust. Um, but at one point, her child got a cough and was coughing. So she immediately took that to mean that it was her fault because she hadn't cleaned enough. So she started cleaning more and more and more and worrying more and more that she hadn't cleaned enough. So there are those situations, and that's an example of where the worry goes in the wrong direction. And that's what helped her address the issue in the end is she went to the local health centre and they explained that it was just a cold and that she didn't need to go down that path and that she was doing a good job in cleaning the house and keeping the dust out of the house. Jason says to understand how communities think about contamination, you have to understand what they value, what gives people a sense of security. You know, you leave work and you go home and you want to be safe. You've, and most people think of their house as being the safe location. You can close the doors and you're safe inside generally. Um, for most people, that's the case. And what tends to happen with contamination and remediation is that sense of safety for many people can be inverted. So that's one of the big worries which affects people, in a sense, they lose a degree of security or they lose a degree of safety in their everyday life. Back on Rhodes Peninsula, Andrew tells me he has a friend I might like to chat with. Someone who'll give me a sense of the type of worry that comes with living near contamination. Hi. She wants to do a quick grab of you. Is it going to benefit my, uh, my uh, standing here and, and yeah. the roads? Yeah. Okay. So Andrew's friend is a labourer from New Zealand. He's been living in Australia about 15 years and working in this area for about three. Joe moved to Rhodes at a pivotal time in the area's history. It was around the time discussions about remediation started, trying to work out how to clean the land and make it safe to live around. But the beginning of remediation in Rhodes wasn't the end of the community's worries. And how long have you been living in the area? Uh, eight years now, since, eight years. since, that, since that, that pile of dirt over there. You know, when it was chemicals, it was all Tees were doing it. The company doing the remediation was Tees. They were here from 2005 to 2009, treating the land to remove the toxins. On their website, Tees claims to have thermally treated 272,000 tonnes of heavily contaminated materials. This basically means digging up all the contaminated soil placing it in a thermal chamber, which looks a bit like a cement mixer, and then blasting it at 500 degrees. This separates the dioxins, breaking them down so they're no longer dangerous. Back when this was taking place, Joe wasn't just sitting and watching it happen. Uh, Joe actually worked for the union before going back on the tools. Right. And Andrew used to be the New South Wales secretary of the CFMEU, so that might be how they know each other. Well, prior to me actually coming to live here, we had a big picket down here. What were you worried about? Or what were you trying to fight for? The, 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 smell of the, the, the smell of the chemicals burning day and night. It wasn't happy with the residents because the, it, it stunk. It wasn't, it wasn't a good smell coming out of there. And were you worried about those chemicals and what they were? Well, when I come here eight years ago, um, they were still burning. And we, could, we had to have the doors locked all the time, close the doors, because it was unbearable, the, the air was unbearable. We couldn't breathe it. And it used to go 24-7. So there was a... Uh, the, the community was up in arms about it. And the residents complained and yep. contacted the union. Yep. 
rather than saying, I'll see you later, we're not worried. We actually came down here and had a picket on the site. Yeah. What was the outcome of the picket? Uh, we actually we actually managed to shut them down. I think th that was the that's far, to my knowledge, we actually managed to stop. They were dragging dirt out of here day and night. Right. Out of here. This just the, so they had a gateway down there. And so you went after the picket, they stopped dragging the dirt down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what happened after that? Um, I think one of the requirements was that uh, the trucks had to be thoroughly uh, hosed down with high pressure water to take away the risk of any uh, soil being left on local streets and so on and people walking on it and walking into their uh, family homes. Remediation is supposed to clean up land, but Jason Pryor from UTS says the remediation process can worry communities even more than the contamination itself. Quite often that contamination is caused by mankind. We do something with a technology or something. You know, 20 years later, they've got a contaminated site next to them or a contaminated groundwater or whatever is in their local area. And suddenly they're told that we're gonna use another technology, a nanotechnology or a physical technology, dig and dump, to actually address the contamination that's already at the site. And the, you know, common response, which is not unsensible is the community to go well if the original technology caused a problem maybe this new one is going to cause a problem problems around contamination and remediation aren't unique to roads they happen all over australia all over the world so how can we make sure communities aren't negatively impacted by these processes I asked Erica McIntyre. She's our psychology expert. People need timely information, so the information needs to reach them fairly quickly, and they need a reliable, trusted source for that information, and one that's accessible to them, so it needs to be in a language that they understand. So that becomes important when you're looking at different cultural backgrounds. Sometimes information isn't presented in, in a way that they understand. And people with disabilities too, that's something to consider for them. They may not be able to access information in the same way. I asked Joe if he remembers getting any information during the remediation process. And did anyone from council? From local council, from the Environmental Protection Agency. And he said no. No. No, no information about what was going on at all. They used to move all the dirt from one pile to there, all over the place. And are you still worried now? Um, it's, well, it's dissipated now, the, the smell. But, um, look, I don't know, with all, the, with all these buildings on top of the chemical dump, well, you don't know what's down under there. There was some community consultation during the remediation process at Rhodes. Teese ran a monthly committee and a bi-monthly reference group where residents could raise issues, talk to council staff and learn about what was going on. An EPA spokesperson also told me that they were heavily involved in community engagement during its regulation on remediation of the site. It's sort of understood by the industry that it is good practice for them as well as the community to engage. For example, if a large company didn't engage around a contaminated site and started to do things on the contaminated site and use technologies or something that the community didn't like or didn't want used, you know, there's, there's paths which the community can use through politics and other means to give their voice. And, you know, it's in the interest of companies out there to actually engage with communities to work that out prior 
to some sort of conflictual situation. But for those involved with doing the remediation, it can be hard to know how to communicate the process. And that's one of the reasons we've been working with the EPA and local councils with this new tool, which we hope to have ready middle of next year. It's sort of a best practice guideline which will tell people of the sort of things they should consider and how they should possibly develop a communication plan for their site. Jason says that up until now, most communication tools have been very generic in this area. They haven't differentiated between types of communication or even types of communities. For example, if you engage with people using English and they speak another, their sort of English is their second language, they're more likely to be worried about the contamination and remediation. So things like that, what we can do is we can, at that level, we can give some really simple advice. For example, you know, when you're speaking to a community, if you've got something to communicate, try and find out what are the key languages in the community and talk to the community in those different languages. Present your information. Don't just give it in English. The tool would also draw attention to those at risk of not worrying enough. Say you have an issue in a community which is actually quite important and people do need to do quite a few things to address the contaminant, like they do need to stop drinking the water or they do need to do a few other things. Worrying less can also be a problem because if you're younger, you know, I suppose you think, I don't know what the general reasoning is why younger people worry less. Often it's said because they feel they're a bit more resilient to life. (laughs) And maybe you need to target that group if you have some issues which really need to be addressed because maybe they become the people who are more at risk because they're not maybe worrying enough in a sense. So there are many reasons why Jason believes we need to help key players in remediation and contamination have better conversations with communities. So it's the ability to build the resilience in the community. Before I go back to Rhodes Station to get on a train back to work, Andrew tells me a story about someone he used to know. So when we're organising the uh, the construction workers here, I came to the site on a very regular basis and uh, represented those workers about their wages, their safety, but I built a friendship up with uh, a number of them. Uh, One of them uh, was a uh, a journalist uh, uh, from Colombia. He was a uh, a, a political prisoner and uh, got uh, refuge in Australia. He worked as a labourer here because he didn't have the English uh, language skills to work as a journalist. And I remember uh, 20 years later, he actually uh, uh, got a a serious cancer. He uh, believed that the cancer was caused by him uh, working on the the Union Carbide site, helping to clean it up. He worked there for about uh, three years. Part of the remediation process on the site. And uh, he tried uh, for many, many years to get up a compensation claim, but he could never get the, uh, the, the, the medical evidence that his work on that particular site uh, caused his uh, cancer. He died a few years ago. I think the important thing to remember in all of this is the reason you'd be doing this is to try and build the resilience in the community so that they can empower themselves 
get rid of the uncertainty and as much uncertainty as possible because in these situations there's always a degree of uncertainty even the experts don't exactly know if what's going to happen is going to totally work quite often i think that's where you know if you can give as much information as possible in these situations you can help that person as much as possible and that's why in the end i suspect consultation and engagement around these issues is so important and you know while someone sitting at home not getting any information is quite dangerous Health is made possible with the support of UTS, 2SER and heard around the country on the Community Radio Network. You can get Think Health wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. I'm Ina Copel. Thanks for listening.